Horse Racing Heroes is proudly sponsored by Horse Racing Ireland. For more great racing stories, sign up to our weekly newsletter on hri.ie. Horse Racing Ireland, for every racing moment. Hello there. Welcome along to Season 2, Episode 6 of Horse Racing Heroes, the racing podcast with no betting tips or news chat, but with every episode simply being about one great horse or person in racing. This episode is about the brilliant Brown Panther, winner of the 2014 Irish St. Ledger and famously bred and owned by former Liverpool, Real Madrid and Man United footballer Michael Owen. And amazingly, it's Michael himself I'm speaking to in this episode. As you'll hear very shortly, Michael speaks incredibly well and incredibly honestly in this interview. Uh, We spoke for just shy of an hour, so he was very generous with his time, and I can't thank him enough. A word of thanks also to John Dance, a previous guest on this show, Season 1, Episode 8, Lawrence, if you're asking, uh, for helping to make this interview happen. And before we begin, I'll just extend my thanks also to the show's sponsors, Horse Racing Ireland. HRI are kindly sponsoring all 10 episodes of Season 2 of this podcast. I'm really delighted to be part of the HRI stable, and uh, if you'd like to see some of the other great racing content they produce, you need look no further than their social media channels, all of which are conveniently linked in the show notes of this podcast, or you could search their hashtag EveryRacingMoment. Those social feeds will be of particular relevance for anyone looking for updates on attendance for Irish Champions Weekend, which is, of course, fast approaching. And without further ado... Let's get listening to Michael Owen telling us all about Brown Panther. So, uh, Michael, just before we get to Brown Panther, uh, could you tell us how you, a Ballon d'Or winning footballer, first got into racing? Well, it was through my dad. Uh, My dad was um, a big racing fan when I used to play on a Saturday morning down at the local park and then on the way home. Uh, if I had scored a goal, he'd give me a pound and he'd send me to the next door, the off-license next door to buy me a bar, bar of chocolate while he nipped into the bookies. Uh, if I didn't score, then he would have just gone in the bookies himself. Um, and he'd always put um, a 50p patent on. So he'd pick three horses. And I used to just go home and, and sit by him and, and cheer his horses home. So I always had that that love of it. And then I started asking him questions, seeing if I was allowed to pick one for him and then started following jockeys and trainers and things like that. So it was all uh, my dad's fault. <laughs> <laughs> it all went from there. It's great. So we'll fast forward a few years then to Brown Panther's mother, Treble Heights. Uh, you owned her and she won a listed race and was second in a group two. Could you just tell us a little bit about her? Yeah, I had dabbled um, into the into buying horses. I, I came back from the World Cup in 1998 and a, a good friend of mine and, and ex-footballer David Platt had his horses with John Gosden at the time. And, and he said to me, why don't you own a horse? And I was like, I didn't even, I don't know why I didn't even think that it was possible. I just thought that was for, you know, the shakes and, and the queen and, and people like that. So uh, anyway, I, I was like, I can't believe I hadn't even thought about it. So he introduced me to John Gosden. I went down to Newmarket and, uh, and it all started from there. So I bought, bought my first couple of horses. They won races, but they weren't anything special. And, and then I fell on uh, on Treble Heights, bought her as a yearling. And uh, and she was very good, you know, as you've mentioned. She came second in a group two with Frankie de Tory riding in, in Deauville, which was a lovely experience. 
uh, won at Newmarket, a listed race. So she was obviously uh, a talented um, filly, and, and uh, yeah, that's where it all started, really, in terms of the you know the, the, the getting into the big league. Fantastic, yeah. And then you decide to send her to Scirocco, which is where Brown Panther came about. So what, why Scirocco, and what sort of horse were you looking to breed there? Yeah, well, of course, at the time I was very young and naive and, and uh, used to buy the racing post every day and, and look at what stallions are doing well and not so well, etc. And I decided right at the start, to uh, because she was a nice mare and she had a nice ped- a pedigree, I decided to give her a real chance. So I went to Pivotal um, as a first covering, which was expensive. I think it was about 85000 at the time. He was right at the, the top of his game. But of course, with breeding, you never know until, you know, three years later when they when they hit the track. Um, so I went to Pivotal again as a second uh, covering. So again, give her a, a good chance. And then I went to Selkirk as a third covering, which she wasn't cheap either. I can't remember what he was, 30 or 40,000 at the time. So I thought I was giving her a real good chance to, to get off the mark. And, and of course, uh, that those offspring ev- eventually ended up racing. And the first one was looking okay, but he wasn't looking at anything exceptional. So I thought, right, if she's not going to be, you know, uh, produce anything off that type of covering, then maybe I should lower my sights a little bit. She was obviously a staying mare. And, um, and there was no rhyme, no reason, no anything. It was just, right, you know, I've spent a few quid already on stallion fees. Until I'm proven otherwise, I might just lower my sights a little bit. So just I just liked Scirocco. I watched him racing, thought he was a, a really good horse. And and, uh, and he seemed really cheap at the time. It was only about £5,000 to, uh, to mate him. So it, there was not, nothing scientific in it at all. It, it turned out pretty well, as, as we'll discuss later on. Um, so Brown Panther then, he's born on the, on the 3rd of March, 2008. Am I right in saying you were there when he was born or quite soon after he was born? Quite soon after he was born, yeah, as with most uh, as with most foals, they're born in the middle of the night. So I got the call the next morning uh, off Richard Kent at Bickley Stud that he's he's uh, he was you know that I'd, I'd had my first ever foal, and uh, and yeah, the, the 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 earliest moment I could, I was uh, I was driving down to the stud farm to to see him, and I always remember. I mean, I've, it takes most people ages to to name a horse. I always remember I named him when he was about two days old. Um, because Richard Kent said to me, he said, uh, watch him now. When he comes out of the stable, he, he puts his head right down. It's like he's stalking you. He's like, it's like he's a panther. So straight away, I just said, oh, I will call him Brown Panther then. So that was, uh, that was the quickest I've ever named a horse. And he was, and he always had that sort of head carriage. When he galloped, he, he didn't necessarily. But, you know, on the, on, when he was cantering at home, he really kept his head low and almost looked out of, of one eye. It was, uh, it was a really unique way of, of moving. That's fantastic. And you've preempted my next question about his name. So when he was at home, what kind of personality did he have? Was he a calm sort or what was he like? Yeah, he was fine. He was a gentleman. Um, one of his brothers was a little bit quirky. Um, I think, you know, um, there, there was a little bit of temperament in the family, but the, but most of the most of the family has, has, has been fine. I've got a couple of them. In fact, I was only this morning uh, walking around my paddocks at home, giving Brown Panther's brother a um, a stroke but yeah there's uh there's a, there's a there's a little quirk in the first one but apart from that all the uh all the the, the offspring out the there have been quite straightforward and funny enough we've had i don't know six or seven 
out the mare uh, before she passed away. Every single one of them was colts as well, which sounds good to a lot of breeders. But of course, you know, when I was wanting to continue the family, it was a nightmare. As soon as I, I uh, lost her, then the whole family was gone. Yeah, of course. Um, that's a shame. But back to Brown Panther, what, what, those early years, was he showing signs of ability? Was there, were you hopeful that he, he was a bit good? Well, as a two-year-old, you just never know. I mean, he was obviously bred to be a very late developing horse. His mother never raced at two. Of course, Scirocco showed all his best form later in life. So he was he was bred to be a late developer. Um, and I always remember him, I think he ran in November for the first time at Southern. And he was showing plenty. I mean, he went off as, I don't know, four or five to one. And he was one of the fancy runners in the race, having never run. So he, he was showing an awful lot, but... He's like, at the time, I thought he looked lovely. But when I look back at videos now, he's like Bambi. He's, he's all legs. He was, you know, he was, uh, you could tell he was so unfurnished at that at that time. But it was only really in about March of the next year of his three-year-old career when we knew we had something special. As a two-year-old, we knew he could gallop um, and we thought he was fine. But you just never know how they're going to develop. But as I say, around March of... Uh, of his three-year-old career, we knew we had something. Yeah, I bet. I mean, you mentioned he was unfurnished as a two-year-old, but he did he did go out and win that race at Sutherland, which was impressive for a horse like him. But yeah, that, that three-year-old season when hopes were getting high, he gets beaten on his reappearance at Kempton, but then he went to Chester for a handicap uh, over a mile and a half, and he gets up to win by a neck. And back in third that day was Colour Vision, who would win an Ascot Gold Cup. So uh, obviously he didn't know that at the time, but I'm sure that was a, a thrill to get him that win at the Chester meeting. Well, we were petrified of the favourite at the Chester meeting because it was a Hampton Almac Tomb horse and we were told that this is a right sort, you know, a 100-plus rated horse. Um, and our bubble had sort of not been burst, but we went to Kempton thinking he was unbeatable. Um, he was working with, like, horses that were rated 105 at home and galloping all over them. We were thinking, like, this is a this could be a 110, 115-plus horse, you know, and he turned out to be that. Um, and Tom was literally telling me, we I think we were running off a mark 70, early 70s after his first win. Uh, and we were going to Campton. Yes, in, in experience, we'd only had one run, but we just couldn't have him beaten. We thought he had like 30 something pounds plus in hand. Um, so when he got beat, it was just the end of the world for me. I thought this is my one chance of having a real good horse. He's beaten everything easily on the gallops. And then he got stuffed. I think he came fourth at Campton. So, so then we went to Chester, knowing he was a lovely horse and he was still working great. But the frustrating thing is we didn't have as much confidence then because of, of course, of what happened. And then we thought oh, he's a big horse, and we only ran him at Chester because it was my local track at the May Festival, and we, you know, that's what we live for. So, and then we were told the Hamden horse can't get beaten, and oh, so. It, and I, I was away at the time. I was having to to, uh, to play. I think I was in a hotel room playing that night, so I couldn't go. But when he won, it was just such a relief that the dream sort of back alive. And then he wins again in May uh, 2011, and then he goes to Royal Ascot in June. He's uh, a joint favourite for the King George V handicap over a mile and a half. And, well, how were the nerves that day going, going to Royal Ascot with a joint favourite? It's mad. I mean, we sent him to to, uh, to Haydock after Chester, knowing that he put up an, a brilliant performance at Chester. I mean, how he won from the way it, it, the, the, the race sort of panned out. And then we sent him to Haydock and we thought, we've got to teach him a bit more here. So we, we let him out the back and, and let him sort of 
find his way, his path through uh, horses, knowing that the Ascot was going to be a big field and, and he'd have to have more experience. But then we turned up at Ascot and, I mean, I shouldn't say because, you know, I played in probably some of the biggest pressured games football-wise that makes a horse race stop. You know, there's be billions of people watching a football game in a World Cup or something, a quarterfinal against Brazil or Argentina or whoever it might be. And I had no nerves as a footballer. I just didn't think, what are, I thought, what are nerves? But I tell you what, own a racehorse and you find out what nerves are. I couldn't, I couldn't. When my horses were running back in the early days, I couldn't eat all day. I, couldn't, I just wanted them to run the first race of the meeting because I was so nervous. And uh, it was that feeling of, emptiness that I've got no control on a football pitch. I felt in control all the time and, you know, our result is going to be largely dependent on us. But when you say goodbye to the jockey and the horse and the parade drink, or even before that, you've just got no, you know, nothing. And it was so, such an empty feeling. And yeah, I, the nerves were just so bad, especially when you've got a horse that you think is very good and you think has got a good chance of winning. And you mentioned the feeling of not being in control. How was that feeling when uh, Richard goes goes for home quite soon that day, I thought. <laughs> so did I. <laughs> I was in the crowd sort of watching it live and flicking to the, the TV that was just behind the winning line. And, and as soon as he circled the field and kicked for home, I just thought, I mean, has he got had, had a rush of blood or, you know, why is he kicking for home so soon? But actually, Richard had obviously knew the horse really well and it became his lethal weapon kicking for home probably a furlong or two earlier than the normal horse would and he would just basically you know kill any kill the horse or kill the rest of the field because he could sustain you know that that uh, gallop uh, so we we used our, our staying powers really and, and uh, but no when he circled the field I was like oh no that's you know three or four lengths gone you know we, we can never win doing that and then he kicked for home early and I was secretly thinking oh no poor decision but of course uh, always leave it to the experts and, uh, and Richard know a lot more than me and that I mean when you when you streak ahead you, you you can't believe it's happening you think he's got to have gone early they're going to come back at him um, but of course he was just so much better than the rest on that day he just kept going further and further clear and with about half an half a furlong to go I actually uh started to think, oh my God, he is going to win this race. And then the rest is just a, a blur. Yeah, I mean, he wins by six lengths, he's down. So I'm sure that last half furlong was pretty nice for you. So to, to breed and own a Royal Ascot winner, I'm sure you're thinking at that point that that's a major box tick there for you. Oh, definitely. I mean, it's, uh, I don't suppose I came into racing to think, oh, I've got to go win this race and that race. I mean, you know, sprinters, stayers, mile, what middle distance horses are like. I'm not really bothered, to be honest. I just love, you know, it's just lovely having a nice horse that can compete at the big races at the big festivals. But yeah, to win a, to win a Royal Ascot race is one thing. In your own colours, uh, having bred him as well against all the superpowers around the world. I mean, and don't get me wrong, it was pure chance, pure luck, but I suppose you pay your money and you take your chance and, and uh and I had all my luck early on in my uh, in my racing career out there. And that's one thing when I look back, I think, you know, I will never, ever have that type of horse again. I might have a horse that's equally as good in my life, but I'm sure we'll go on to talk about some of his other days as well. But in terms of pleasure, he took me to every single corner of the earth 
and was just the most sound, solid, honest, brilliant horse. Um, it was, it was, I, I, I just got lucky so soon in life. I just hope it happens again. You mentioned he brought you, brought you to a few different places. So his next run was in, uh, in Hamburg for the German Derby. Uh, he was fifth. Was that a disappointing run or how was that experience? Yeah, I think it was a disappointing run, you know, all being told. But it was a great experience, I mean, booking a private plane at the time and, and flying out and you were favourite for the German derby. And it was, uh, oh yeah, it was when you've got a good horse and you're plotting which big race to go to, it's so exciting. And being able to share that with family and friends and, as I say, being in a fortunate position that you can you can uh, book a flight out to Hamburg and, and get sort of 15 of your, your closest, fa- you know, friends and family on the uh, on the plane was was brilliant so yeah but the, the race itself was very strange i mean going from royal ascot all of a sudden you see the top hats and tails and the most perfect track and everything's perfect then you go to germany it was it was almost like an old park and the ground was absolutely bottomless and apparently about you know a mile from home there was there was almost like a swampy area as well so there was a couple of false bits of ground um so, but we were favourite, and I did expect him to, to run a big race, and we, we hoped he would obviously win. Um, so to come fifth, yeah, we, we were disappointed. But I'm sure his, his next big target then was the St. Ledger. He was second in his trial in the Jeffrey Freer. And then before the Ledger, you, I guess, didn't want to take any chances. You went for a more experienced jockey in Kieran Fallon. So how did that decision come about? Yeah, this is probably, I don't know, I was going to say this is one of the one regrets of my life, but it wasn't a regret. I don't know what I'm sort of trying to get at here. I think it's regretful because I adore Richard Kingscote and, you know, I think the world of him and so does everyone at my stables. Um, and he's obviously developed into one of the best jockeys around now. But at the time, you've got an absolute living legend that's run, raced in, in a million of these, you know, big group one races. To have Kieran Fallon there, um, of course, on the back of the disappointment of Germany and things like that. And at no point did we blame Richard or anything else, but he was still a, a real young lad. And, you know, I've been involved in, in things like that. You know, as a, as a footballer myself, I've been told, you know, in a cup final, we're going to play someone else today. And it's like, I mean, the feeling is just so bad. And I just felt so bad saying to Richard that, you know, I've, I wouldn't mind Kieran Fallon riding it in this race because no matter what you say, but don't worry, you're going to get back on him and things. It doesn't matter. You just hear what you've just listened to. And it's just, you know, you just can't, I, I couldn't take it as a footballer. I, you know, it, it, it hurts a lot. So it was one of those things. I, I hated doing it, but I spoke to Tom and, and, uh, and um, yeah, and we just decided that it'd be, it'd be, better in a big race like this with Richard having never ridden in a I'm not sure whether he'd ridden in a in a group one before I don't think so uh, maybe the German derby was a group one anyway uh, we just thought Kieran Fallon what a living legend he'd done it been there and seen it and done it and he gave it the most unbelievable ride um, in the ledger I don't think any jockey could have got it um, placed in the you know to come second in, in that race so I mean he gave it a great ride and, and uh, so it was one of those moments that I regret it because I felt so bad and I'll always feel bad about it. But then I don't regret it because I think it was a great decision and I don't think any jockey in the world would have come second on him. So it was a good decision, but also a regretful one. 
Yeah, well put. There's he do, he does give it a great ride. There's a great moment where the favorite Sea Moon is trying to get out, and Kieran keeps him in, and you know, that, yeah. that probably helped you finish ahead of him. And am I right in saying on the day itself you were a Man United player at this point, and Sir Alex Ferguson kindly gave you the day off to go and watch? Amazing, yeah, it was amazing. We were playing Bolton away, and um, and I never even dream of asking him. I mean, when Brown Panther won at Chester, I was like, I was playing for Manchester United at the time. I was in a hotel. I would never have even dreamt of saying it. I mean, that was my job. Um, but Sir Alex obviously was a keen horse enthusiast, so he knew what it meant. Uh, he had noticed that I had a runner in the, in the St. Ledger, and I never asked him anything. He just came up to me a, a day or two before we were about to play Bolton and say, listen, um, you know, you were going to be on the bench, but it's a huge day for you. I'm prepared to... Uh,
Nathaniel and horses like that, then uh, then we were probably tilting a little bit. But it was uh, it is one of the most famous races in the world, and and uh, yeah, we thought we'd we'd give it a go. Yeah, and he 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 was he he led the field about two furlongs out. I'm sure you got a, a bit excited for a second. Um, Richard gets back on board for his next run again in the Jeffrey Freer. Um, how did that switchback happen? You know, I can't remember how the switchback happened. It was all always in my mind um, that Richard was our stable jockey. I've got to, you know, we've got to trust him because what's the point? How, how can we not put him on our best horse and then expect our owners to to say, oh yeah, you know? So it was always in my mind just to put Kieran on for the for the St. Ledger and almost give the ride back to, to Richard to sort of get even more experience and things like that. After all, you know, the Ledger's a classic and I thought maybe if we, you know, if we tiptoe him back into listed races or group three races or whatever uh, and put Richard back on. So I don't know, it was always in the back of our mind. I'm not sure whether Kieran was available or not or, or something, but it was always going to be a switch back at some point. It was just a question of when, really. So from the English ledger uh, the previous year, he runs in the 2012 Irish ledger. He's third, beaten a very small margin. Um, was that a tough one to take? You know, Travelling abroad and, and, you know, as much as winning a Royal Ascot is amazing, there's something unbelievable about travelling a horse and, and going away and, and getting on a flight all excited with all your friends and family and things like that. It's, uh, there's something special about it. So to, to, uh, to do that again would have been, would have been a, a great experience, yeah. And of course, disappointing. Every, every time, when you've got a horse like him and he goes and wins a big race, it's more a fear of failure more than that. It's, it's a bit like playing football. It's when, Once you've done it, once you've, you know, won a golden boot or won a trophy or whatever, it's, it's not the pleasure of doing it again. It's more, that's ours and we don't want anyone winning it. Um, and, you know, I speak to a lot of people, Tony McCoy says exactly the same, that, you know, it was it was more a failure of somebody beating him rather than the pleasure of him doing it himself. And uh, when you've got a great horse that, that you know, or you think is a great horse, it's the fear of losing um, and the fear of yeah that that that, that hurts more than the, the excitement of winning. I suppose. Uh, he went to France next. It was the Group One Pre Royal Oak. Uh, he's down the field. Was it was the ground against him? Maybe he was a little bit flat that day as well, or something. Yeah. Do you know what? We were going through a period at the time where he would obviously put in you know, performances like a Royal Ascot and the St. Ledger and, and, of course, other big races. But then he would throw, he threw in one or two average runs as well. Um, of course, that was one of them in, in France. And we thought he handled, I mean, his, his mother liked to cut in the ground. His dad loved cutting the ground, Scirocco. So we always had it in our mind that the softer, the better, really. Not that he was dependent, just that some horses can't cope and he can. So, you know, we were going to France thinking, oh, cutting the ground, perfect, softer, the better. Um, so at the time, we didn't really use it as an excuse. And we still don't know why he didn't run that well in that race. But it was towards the end of a long season, I suppose. And in hindsight, maybe he was, uh, he was just, you know, he was just off it. He had a much uh, shorter season the following year. Well, fewer runs. He had just the four runs. He won at Pontefract and he won the Goodwood Cup, uh, which I'm sure was a great start. And then ultimately he runs eighth in the Melbourne Cup. So was, was the Melbourne Cup always that plan for the season and you wanted to give him a life campaign? So I don't think it was... Um, we certainly didn't start that season off thinking Melbourne 
Cup. Uh, it sort of grew on us as the season went on. But but going to Pontefract and winning, you know, the, the listed race there was was great. And then of course, glorious Goodman was just stunning when he won that. It was just an amazing day. Um, oh, yeah, that was brilliant. And again, because it just reminds you how good he is. He is really, you know. I think when they run badly, say in France or whatever, you you need to be convinced again. I suppose there's a lot of question marks, but but those two wins were, were a great way to start the season, and uh, and then it was it was planning the campaign after that. Really, could you tell me a little bit about Melbourne? Did you manage to get down there yourself for it? Oh yeah, yeah, we went down ourselves. Yeah, it was absolutely awesome. I mean, I. I it's just a, it's just something that's so different to anything else. We we uh, we went for about six days. Me, my mum, my dad, and three of my mates, and uh, and we just had the most unbelievable time. We stayed in a great hotel. We booked the most brilliant restaurants, um, and the race itself. I mean, a couple of days before, I'm in a we're all all the trainers and owners and jockeys are in a in a convertible car, like a fleet of 40 cars. And I can only liken it to sort of the London Marathon. I ran in the London Marathon and, the, 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 you know, the, the roads are just lined with people and all they're seeing is like owners and trainers and jockeys. It's like, we're not stars in any way. It's like, it just felt weird. But literally hundreds of thousands of people just, you know, wanting to come out and, and see everyone. And, uh, and we got to the main town hall or whatever, and then we all had to, had to do a bit of an interview in front of thousands of people. And it was just, wow, this is two days before. It was an amazing experience. And, of course, every morning the horse was working, so we would get up early, get the taxi to, to Werribee or Warraby or something it was called, uh, the racetrack that was close by. And he was really working well. And all the locals and the local papers were saying, you know, there's a horse called Brown Panther that's really working well and could could have a good chance. And then the draw. The draw was one of the most exhilarating moments of my life. So over there, you, you're all in a room. It's like a big event. It's live on TV. And we've been asking the locals and asking a lot of people, jockeys and things, where, where do you want to be? And we, we worked out that draw six was the best. And of course, there's loads and loads of runners. So Tom said, so there had to be one representative goes up onto the top table and, and do the draw. And there were all trophies. So I can't even remember how many runners there were, but every, every draw was a trophy. You lift the trophy up and on the bottom of it was the number. And Tom said, we want number six. So I said, right, I'm going to definitely get number six. I just, I don't know why I might've had a couple of drinks or I don't know why, but I was ultra confident anyway. The first owner, whoever it was, went up and he drew something. Someone else drew something. And there was about 10 trophies left when Brown Panther was named. So I then went up and six still hadn't been. And I went like that. I didn't even look at it. I just went like that to Tom in the crowd. And uh, and it was number six. So our whole contingent just exploded into life. And all the cameras were like, why are they so... And uh, yeah, getting a perfect draw all that way out. Now we've got the perfect draw. It was, uh, oh, it was so funny. That's amazing. Brilliant story. And he, he runs eighth. I mean, you get 80 grand for that, which I'm sure covers a lot of the cost. So uh, he, he's, he ran very well in a, in a, you know, one of the most difficult races in the world. He did. He ran a great race. Um, I think you needed to be top 10, basically, to cover your costs of the whole trip. So 
that was uh, that was obviously a, a, a nice thing that he, he came eighth. But he was in the box, you know, he was right up there for, for most of the way, and he got struck into, and that was the only worry. Uh, after the race, he came in and there was literally blood squirting from his leg, and you think, oh no, you know, this could be bad, because we were planning on taking him to Japan or Hong Kong on the way home before he then we were then going to stop in Dubai and let him winter in Dubai maybe or, or whatever. Um, but then his blood, his, the blood was really coming out of his leg and I was now in a panic that I might lose him in terms of from racing. It wasn't a big cut at all. It was only very small. It was only like the size of a, a 10 P or something. Um, but it was a lot of blood coming out of it. So we just didn't know whether it's severed some artery or anything else like that. But anyway, about an hour after the race, the vets called us and said, it's going to be fine. He'll, you know, we'll race and get everything that's fine. But of course, once that happened, um, you patch him up and you, you take him home. And, and uh, that's exactly what we did. So it was a good run um, in a real tough race. I mean, that's a hard race for horses. Yeah, I didn't realise he was struck into, so that's very interesting as well. 2014, Brown Panther is now six. Um, he starts off the season with a win in the Group 3 Ormond at Chester. And as you mentioned before, you love that festival. So to get another win there must have been, must have been brilliant for you. And you beat the favourite, Hillstar. So. Yeah, yeah. Chester to me is, uh, is you know, it's, it's Royal Ascot to everyone else. And don't get me wrong, I love Royal Ascot. But if you've never been to Chester, then you're, you're missing out. I mean, it's the most unbelievable racetrack. A great atmosphere. You know, it's, it, it is like no el- nowhere else. I suppose the Melbourne Cup on a grander scale is, is similar in terms of the party atmosphere. But there is nowhere else like Chester races. It's unbelievable. And it's obviously where I was brought, born, brought up. Um, so I was desperate to, uh, to run in the Ormond. He'd already had track form. And it was, I think there was, it was a small field, but it was basically a two-horse race, I think. Hillside was favourite. We were second favourite. But, you know, Shaw's in the betting as well. And, uh, yeah, it was uh, another great moment. I, I mean, when he came round the corner, I had... Going back to his dam, actually, Treble Heights, if you had, had, you know, had some amazing moments with Brown Panther, but one of the most unbelievable feelings was when I was only 19, 20 or something, Treble Heights came round the, the corner with two furlongs to go, her first ever race, and she was still just sat there. John Carroll was riding, still sat there on the bridle, and I just thought, I, I, I thought I was going to die. My heart literally just... And uh, I, there's something about it. There's something about coming round the bend at Chester and seeing your horse like you think you know you've got a good idea whether it's going to win or not when it's coming around the bend and it, I don't know what it is about that bend and they straighten up and you think oh my god he's going to win and then you, 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 your heart just explodes it's the most amazing feeling and I'm sold I'll, I'll be booking the tickets for Chester as soon as I can then uh, <laughs> next he ran in a group three over two miles at Sandown the Henry second stakes uh, wins in great style and I'm guessing this was an ideal prep for the Ascot Gold Cup yeah, I remember I was in uh, Portugal. We were on holiday for that race, so we were watching it on telly in, in Portugal. And uh, I think he was carrying a, a small penalty as well, but he came there swinging again about two furlongs out. Everything was pushing away, and, and Richard was just sat motionless. So that was a lovely, lovely win. Um, and as you say, straight after that, it was like, right, well, and we'd already had our eyes on the Ascot Gold Cup, but we thought he's, uh, he's tailor-made for it. Yeah, he, he certainly did seem tailor-made for it. He was a five-to-one second favourite on the day. 
he finishes fourth, subsequently promoted to third behind leading light and estimate. Um, at one point, it looked like he might have he, he was going to win as well. So I'm sure yeah. he's pretty, oh, yeah. pretty excited. Oh yeah, I mean, at one point, as you say, he was he was the last off the bridle. Really, he was he was. I'd have defy anyone to say with three furlongs to go that anyone was travelling better. So I suppose to finish fourth was was almost quite disappointing in a way, um, especially as the race was panning out. I suppose you could say it did. I mean, he may not have stayed that far. It's two and a half miles. It's a lot longer than than, uh, than he'd be used to, to running. Um, but I mean, that was a classy field, as you say, leading light and estimate that, that went on to to, uh, to win a, an Ascot Gold Cup as well. So. You know, in hindsight, he, he was very competitive, came third in the end after, as you mentioned, there was a, there was a horse that got thrown out. Um, yeah, it was uh, it was great, but I don't know. There's always a tinge of disappoint- disappointment when you don't win. So he probably ran a little bit below what I'd hoped, um, but still ran a cracking race. After that, he has two runs, two runs in defeat in two Group 2s, and then it was on to the Irish Ledger. Uh, he's a 14 to one shot. The Ascot winner leading light is in there and a few other good horses. So were, were you confident of a big run that day? No, not in a million years. No, I wasn't confident at all. Um, as you said, there had been, you know, leading light was in there. He had beaten us at Ascot. So why could we, ref- you know, reverse that form, I suppose, in a way? Um, it looked like we had a bit more toe than leading light, I suppose, because as you say, at, at Ascot, he looked like, he didn't stay really and leading like outstayed him. So you could have made that case, but still, you know, he's being fair and square at Ascot. So there's no reason why I would think that, that we would re- you know, reverse the form. Um, another one, I mean, it, it's one of those things that you just can't believe. He was, the, the, I remember the pacemaker going off and us following him. And I was thinking, we always wanted to be prominent because we wanted to kick for home early and stretch everyone and see if anyone could, could live with us. But Richard went really close to the pacemaker and I was thinking, surely we're going too fast here. And uh, and as soon as he went past him, it was still, my, it was still a long way out and he starts kicking for home. And again, you never learn your lessons, do you? I was the same as at Ascot. I was thinking, oh, he's gone too soon. Is this, is that. He's going to get caught now. And, and, uh, and two furlongs to go, he's still not stopping. He's, in fact, if anything, he's kicking further clear and you're thinking, oh, well, he's definitely going to go a furlong to go and he's still kicking clear and you think, and it's only about then that you can let yourself believe. If it was someone else's horse, I would have been, and I'd backed it, I would have been counting the money at three furlongs. When you look at it now, you think, how could I have been so nervous? But when it's yours and it means so much, you can hardly believe that it's happening. Like, until it, until it crosses the line, you still... And as much as I had so much confidence in him, he was uh, I still couldn't truly believe that he was going to keep up that relentless gallop until the line. It was unbelievable, our first Group 1. Yeah, I mean, it was an incredible performance. He wins a Group 1, as you say, by six and a half lengths. Um, was, was that his best ever performance for you? I think it has to be. I think it has to be, yeah. Um, you know, to win a Group 1, to win a Classic, there's no soft races at that level. And he absolutely pulverised them really that day. And people will always look for excuses. You know, did they let him off? Did they let him have an easy lead and things like that? Um, 
But I think you'd be hard-pressed to say he wasn't the best horse on the day. I mean, he absolutely pulverised them and he wasn't stopping. You know, you could have run another three furlongs and it would have been the same result. I think everyone would uh, would agree with that. So, yeah, I think to win a win a group one, to win a classic by over six lengths, is, uh, it has to be there with his uh, best ever performances, yeah. Mm. So you've bred and you own this uh, group one classic winner. You've also, you've retired from football uh, at this point, so I assume you were able to celebrate it and enjoy it quite a bit. Exactly, yeah. It, yeah, I mean, the only the only big question mark was whether to stay in Ireland and have a party. But it was a Sunday night, we were thinking, and my mum was saying, oh, come on, get back home. You know, we've, we've booked the flights and things like that. But we had, we had flown over early that morning, really early, and, uh, and a friend of mine called Tony Gorman, who's the brother to the assistant at the Manor House Stables, uh, Colin, he sort of organised us to go into a local golf course, a, a clubhouse. Um, so we landed there. We had a big breakfast. We were on the on the drink straight away first thing uh, in the morning. So we were we'd had quite a few drinks by the time the uh, the race had, had started. And uh, and you know one or two of the lads were saying, "Come on, let's stay over in Ireland. We'll just rebook some flights tomorrow and things like that." Anyway, we ended up all flying flying home and partying all the way home, but. Yeah, that was just an amazing moment. As I say, probably his, his, his best ever performance. Yeah, I can only imagine how good a day that was for you. And then the plan next for him was to go uh, stateside. Well, he was going to run in Canada and then the Breeders' Cup, but things didn't go to plan in Canada. Could you tell us about that? Yeah, it was amazing. I uh, I ended up going to, uh, well, we ended up wanting to run him in, in uh, Canada. I think it was at Woodbine um, or wherever it was anyway. And yeah, the second favourite in that race was Hills- Hillside that we had just beaten at Chester. We were the favourite for a, you know, for a big race, big money race. So really excited. I had some television commitments, a couple, you know, a day or so later. So I flew out and I landed in Canada and, you know, at about eight o'clock in the morning. The race was that day and I had to fly back out at about nine o'clock at night. So I didn't even book into a hotel. I was just there, didn't take a bag or anything, just there, watch the race and fly back home then I was going to land. I think I was landing in the morning and I had to go straight to the TV studio. So, of course, everything's fine. He's trained great. The horses are parading. It's the first time he's ever been ponied. Um, then you hear the bugle and all the music and things like that, and he just did not like any of it. And he got rid of his jockey, um, you know, as they were milling around before the start, and that was it. He just set off. And... It's strange. I've got quite a positive outlook on life. It's I've got a strange outlook in, in many ways. But Tom was like, "Oh no!" Like all this work, all this trip, all this, and everyone was feeling the same. And the horse came bolting round, and he was running. He had done a full lap, and he was coming back to the stalls. And the start starting stalls were basically on the finishing line, and the start stalls are there, and there's a big tractor. And I'm looking side on and thinking, oh, no, he's running at like 40 mile an hour to these stalls. He's dead. He's not going to slow down. He's just going to, he's dead. And he's bolting. Anyway, I almost closed my eyes and he finds this tiny gap between tractor and stalls and runs through it. And at that point, I've never been so happy in my life. Everyone's sort of holding it. And I'm thinking... I, I don't know why, I just see the positive in everything. I don't know what, what it is. And I just thought, we've got a horse that, okay, you know, but I've, I was, it's fine, I flew out here, we'll have a couple of drinks and we'll drown our sorrow and all the rest of it. 
But I just, for five seconds, I thought, my horse is about to die. The relief when he found this little gap in between the tractor and the stalls, and I knew that we were going to have a horse for the future, was just... And I almost went home a happy man. It was it was a real... The, the, the mixture of emotions within the two-minute window was uh, was quite quite mad. Yeah, it sounds like a nice... A, a much-needed dose of perspective at that point, I suppose. Um, his next run was in the Breeders' Cup when he did manage to line up, but um, he, 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 he runs down the field, but was it a, a more enjoyable experience for you? Yeah, it was another great experience. I mean, we didn't really expect him to to uh, to go win a breed. Again, it was over short and a shorter distance than he was used to, rattling fast ground. So, you know, that obviously doesn't bring staying power into uh, into play really. So that was a bit of a write off. Um, we had always planned to go Canada and leave him out there for the Breeders' Cup a few week, couple of weeks later. So, so that remained sort of the plan and. Um, but I think Canada was the race that took us out there. You know, that was the, the race that we thought we're going to win this. And then we'll, while we're out there, we'll have a shot at the Breeders' Cup. Um, so, yeah, so of course, Canada didn't happen. And then the Breeders' Cup was a bit of a non-event for him in a way. So great experience, though. Another brilliant, brilliant uh, meeting. Love, love going to the Breeders' Cup. And it's a, again, it's something else. I'd, I'd love to go there again. And then he's... Break before a seven-year-old season is quite short compared to usual because um, he goes out to Dubai to win the Dubai Gold Cup. So when did you hatch that particular plan? Yeah, Dubai, obviously, you know, finances in Dubai, the prize money was huge at the time, still is. Um, we love Dubai as a family. We love going on holiday there. And, yeah, to, to run in the Stayers race in the Gold Cup out there on Dubai World Cup night, I'd been to a couple of uh, Dubai World Cups and just loved it. So I was really keen on the idea of running him in the Stayers race. And and it was another one, you know, you asked me which was his best performance. I'd have to say the Irish St. Ledger when he won it, but closely followed by this one. I mean, he was absolutely electric that night. I mean, he scooted clear of them, again, kicked early. And it was one, it was one of the only times I had all my family, my children. I was literally holding to my kids and, in my arms as they were as a horse was uh, was running and um yeah to win with all your family there i mean i'd been there with brothers sisters mum dad or whatever but to have my own children there watching him in dubai oh god he, yeah he was brilliant and another big part of that was richard kingsco had had a horrific injury um a few months earlier at wolverhampton and i went to see him you know straight after his, his injuries. He was in a bad, bad way, you know, loads and loads of broken bones, pins and plates everywhere. I mean, it was really bad. And uh, and I always remember thinking, right, he's just got injured. He's probably going to be six months. And it was about, the race was about five months away from his injury. And I said to him, as he was in his hospital bed, really struggling, I said, you're going to ride in Dubai, Brown Panther, your first ride, you know, you're going to be straight out there You've got five months to get ready. They're saying you're going to be six. You need five months or, or whatever the time difference was. So it almost, I wanted to give him a real sort of something to aim for, to get back for, because he was such a huge cog in the wheel as well. Um, but I had been injured myself in life. And I, to me, it took me a right few games to get back firing again. And I was like, should I have said that to Richard? But I was desperate for him, for him himself, you know. But I wanted to give him a target to get back as well. So to get Richard back, um, 
for him to have that target to work to and him to be riding it uh, was was another sort of subplot to the to the story as well. It was a great night. Yeah, I can imagine. And Richard would also have been motivated by his share of £384,000, which was uh, the horse's biggest payday. So I'm sure that was a nice bit of satisfaction to get as well. Yeah, and, and no, no question about it. You know, the purse, certain purses will turn your head, won't they? And, and uh, Dubai is, is certainly one of those. I mean, I think at that time, you, you know, once he had won his, his group one and, and, you know, almost booked his place as a stallion, um, then... You know, you're looking at big purses, you're looking at races that can enhance his, his value as a stallion and things like that. So, and of course, the Dubai one was a, was a huge purse. He'd already won his group one, but and I think that was a group two, the Gold Cup at the time. But uh, yeah, the the, uh, the the purse was certainly the thing that, that turned our head. And of course, racing him in a place that we loved having a holiday as well. So that was in March of uh, 2015. He he ran next in May of that year in York. Uh, he was second. How how was how was that day? Yeah, again, I think it was a stout horse um, that beat us that day. And it was, you know, it was, I think we were giving him a three-pound, we were conceding a three-pound penalty. And it was basically neck and neck the whole um, way up the up the straight in, at York. Um, yeah, again, sort of, it was a great race. And you've got to be, you know, good in, in defeat as you are in victory. And, of course, you know, we did both with, with Brown Panther. But it's so hard when you think it's a head-to-head and a two-horse race and things like that. And, Oh, you get done. It's it's painful, but that's life, isn't it? That's what makes the great days so much greater. If you win every time, then I, I guess it's uh, it's it's not as much fun. So it, it makes when you do win, it makes you appreciate it even more. That, yeah, you're right. It was a stout horse, Snow Sky, and you were giving him five pounds. So you're even more value for it. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Not that I hold a grudge against it. Yeah. <laughs> um, he didn't run again until September. Uh, did he have any any issues or anything that summer? He did, yeah. He he had a couple of issues. Um, he had, he, well, he had one issue basically, and he was getting a bit of a stress fracture. It was a little, there wasn't a fracture there, but on X-ray, there was a couple of little areas that you think, oh, if we push him here, then we're going to be asking for trouble. So we we just left him alone, and, and you know, and uh, re-X-rayed later on in the season, and everything was fine. Everything had cleared up, and. And we built him up again, and um, but he was on a totally different leg. It was on the opposite leg to what the leggy eventually damaged in the uh, in the Irish St. Ledger. Okay, I see. So I don't like to dwell too much on on the low points on the show, but I will just ask you to tell us about uh, that day, the Irish Ledger. You've, you've since described it as the saddest day of your life. Oh, it was just horrific. Yeah. Horrific. I mean, the plan was to run him in the Irish St. Ledger, try to defend his uh, crown, and then we were going to run him in the Champions Day at Ascot uh, as a final swan song, and then he, we'd already booked his, his place at Stud. We knew where he was going. I'd gone and visited the Stud. We had started looking at pedigrees and mares to, to buy some mares to to, uh, to send to him to get him off the ground and everything else. And so new horizons were sort of opening in your mind, and, and I couldn't Wait to, to you know the manor house to and everybody to train some you know brown panthers of, of, them, of their own. So my mind had started sort of going towards standing a stallion and how exciting that would be and whatever. But there was a couple of races that we wanted to, to run in him first. And as I said, he had had problems that year with with one of his legs, but that had healed and we gave him sufficient time and everything else. 
and everything seemed great going into the race. And of course, he, he set off and he'd run nearly a mile. I would have thought everything was fine. In fact, it was very similar to, to when he won it the year before. He was in a great position in second. And then I was watching live. I was in the stand and I was watching in the distance. So he's about three quarters of a mile away from me. And my colours at the time, the, the turquoise are quite distinct. You can see them easily. And as soon as you couldn't quite see exactly what happened, but you just saw me in second and you're watching him and all of a sudden, within the blink of an eye, he's last. And you just think, and I knew, you know, when you just, don't take a, a genius to know, but you just know, don't you? I knew as soon as I saw him go from second to last, I just knew he's going to be put down shortly. I just, I just knew it. You, you, you can't, you can't, that, it just can't happen like that, can it, in a race without it being really severe. And I mean, I just remember running down from the stand into just trying to find any uh, official sort of office or anything. And anyway, somebody, you know, was there and, and they got us a car. And by the time I got there, so sort of five minutes later, the horse was stood up still. But the vet sort of wanted to, to say to me before he actually sadly did the deed that it's just irreparable. He's going to have an awful life if we try to keep him. Um, it is the kindest thing, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, to, to, to actually splutter those words and agree to, of course, you've, I, I suppose you've got to. I mean, they're professionals. The care and attention from everyone at the core of that day was, was amazing. Um, but it's still so hard to actually say yes, you know, and say, yes, you can put my pride and joy down. I mean, it was the worst feeling ever. Literally the worst feeling ever. Thankfully, I've not had to, to suffer anything as bad in my life. Uh, and I just remembered just seeing him go and just sort of stroking him and, and then basically just crying for about six hours until I went to sleep at night, the whole way home on the flight, just inconsolable. I just couldn't stop crying. And uh, still to this day, I mean, it's just so sad, you know, so sad. He was such a good lad, such a tough boy and you know, he was kind. He, you know, he wasn't a nasty horse anyway. And bear in mind his age and he still had his bits intact. Most horses go a bit aggressive and, but he was not. He was just the most perfect gentleman. And, uh, yeah, that's one of the big regrets that he's not standing as a, as a stallion. I would have loved, absolutely loved to have had his offspring. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. And uh, Sorry for putting you through the grief of reliving that day, but are you now able to reflect on what a great career he had? I mean, he won 11 of his 28 starts. He won over 1.1 million in prize money. Like, would you ever sit down and just treat yourself to some of those replays of some of those great days? Do you know what I did about... About two months ago, I was, uh, I just don't know why, it was midnight, I was downstairs still, I had had a couple of drinks or whatever, you know, we were, and I just, and I wasn't tired at all, and I was thinking, nothing on the telly, there's no live sport, and I was thinking, what what shall I do, you know, what shall I, anyway, I put the phone on, and I, I logged in, and I, I, I signed in to being a member of the Racing Post uh, app. Just so, and I literally sat there for about three hours and pressed, and I watched every single race of it. It was only about two or three months ago, and sat there with a lump in my throat. And uh, yeah, it was uh, it was brilliant, therapeutic, and re, re, you know, recalling some of his, his 
is uh, is racist because you pretty much remember them all step by step. And it was, uh, yeah, oh, I can certainly appreciate it now. And, and the sad thing for me, and I'm certainly not defeatist in any way, shape or form. I mean, I am probably the most positive person that anyone will, will meet. But I am defeatist when it comes to horses now in terms of I know for a fact I will never, ever have Brown Panther again. Never, ever will I have a horse that I care for more. Um, I own the mare. I had the, his brothers all in my in my paddocks at home. You know, we would feed them for his brothers and whatever. He'd come home for his winter break and things like that. And as I say, I might have a horse again that runs in group ones, that win group one. Very unlikely that I would have bred him. Very unlikely that I would have, you know, gone through all the ups and downs with his with his mum and his offspring and, you know, all his family living at our house. Um it just, it's just important. And then again, going on to, you can all, like, to me, he was more, I would have preferred to own him than a, a horse like Frankel or someone. Now, don't get me wrong, Frankel was the greatest horse I've ever seen and there will ever be, probably. But he took me to the Breeders' Cup, to Melbourne Cup, to Canada, to France, to Germany, to Royal Ascot, to Dubai, to Ireland. He danced literally every dance and was just, the hardest thing, toughest thing, kindest thing. He had everything. So, uh, yeah, so I'll never have anything like him again. Hopefully I'll have something with his ability, but uh, I will never, ever be able, I just will never be able to be as attached to, uh, to anything as I was to him. Well, Michael, I think that is a perfect note for us to end on, and we're just out of time. So, listen, I just have to say thanks so much for giving me your time to talk about him. Hearing all that, you told the stories really well, and it was it was it was so enjoyable for me to hear them. So thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. All right, there you have it. Just just me and my good friend, Mike Lone, having a little chat. No big deal. Whatever. A huge huge thanks to Michael for doing that interview. I'm sure whatever football team you support, you can agree that he was incredibly interesting to listen to there. Thank you also, of course, to the show sponsors, Horse Facing Ireland. Without them, this series would not be happening. So please do go and check out the links in the show notes to follow their social media channels and also my own Twitter so you can get all the updates on further episodes of Horse Racing Heroes. And now before I let you go, just a couple of things you could do for me, if you have a second. Uh, It would mean a lot. Firstly, please do make sure you subscribe to the show so you never miss an episode any and all social media engagement where it's retweeting liking or sharing telling friends always hugely appreciated and finally if you are listening on apple podcasts i would love it if you could leave me a review on there and on that note big thanks to h mckenna 26 for their lovely review there last week really appreciate it thank you and just a reminder that this series is fortnightly so the next episode will be released on the 15th of september i won't tell you what that one is just yet but i'm hoping it'll be a special one Thank you very much for listening and I'll speak to you soon.